Lord, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you for men like William Tyndale that you raised up to give us your word in a language that we can understand. And there's so many others, men and women, who've dedicated their lives so that we could know and have your word in our language. Lord, so many languages around the world that you have um, orchestrated your word being translated into. And we are so thankful for that. We're thankful for your spirit who helps us to understand the word, to understand what it says and, and Lord, to motivate us to apply it. And I would just ask that that would be um, what he does this morning, that you would cause your spirit to move in us in such a way that we would please and honor you by how we respond to your truth. And we pray all these things in the name of our dear Savior. Amen. Well, you've probably heard of that game show, Family Feud, right? Familiar with that? It's been going on for quite a while. I think 25 plus years they've had the show. Um, you know, it's where two families compete against one another and they guess at survey questions and get points for, for that. Well, one of the most unique episodes happened in the show's third season, 1979. They had a, a pig in a cage up on stage for the whole entire show. And there were two families. The reason they had this pig were the two families that were involved in this feud were, went by the name of Hatfield and McCoy. And they actually were able to find direct descendants from the Hatfields and the McCoys. You, you've probably heard of them, right? What are they known for? Feud, right? Yeah, in fact, the most famous uh, feud in American history was between those two families back in the late 1800s. In fact, most historians uh, agree that the feud probably began or at least was accelerated by uh, one Randolph McCoy who accused Floyd Hatfield of stealing some of his pigs. In fact, that's, that's why they had a pig in the show. Uh, and what happened was there was a, a jury that was brought together to uh, uh, basically convict or exonerate Floyd Hatfield. And it, and it was found that this jury found, which I think was six Hatfields on it and six McCoys, by the way, found him innocent. And that was based on the testimony of one of the star witnesses. Now, this star witness happened to be uh, uh, related to the McCoys, but married to Hatfield. Yeah, it's kind of weird, huh? Well, anyway, he got off, uh, or, or Floyd Hatfield got off because of this star witness. Turns out that the Hatfields were not too happy about that, so uh, two of Randolph McCoy's nephews murdered the star witness. And then, not long after that, Randolph McCoy's daughter was uh, involved in a relationship with John C. Hatfield, who got her pregnant and then abandoned her. These things did not foment a lot of harmony and grace between the families. And things even got worse when, uh, when one uh, person, uh, Hatfield, was murdered by three of Randolph McCoy's sons. And as a result, Devil Ants Hatfield, he's the patriarch of the Hatfield family, he had those three young men captured and then executed. And on and on it went, both families continuing fighting against one another, some violently for the next 30 years. It was a bloody eye for an eye feud, which at the head of it was a man full of bitterness and strife named Devil Lance Hatfield. And that feud continued on and on, taking the lives of over 15 people in both families. And we know that conflict is not isolated to the backwoods of western Kentucky, western Virginia, excuse me, in Kentucky in the late 1800s, right? Conflict is not just found there, but it's found in every nook and cranny of human existence. Conflict exists in our jobs, in our homes, wherever people are, in our church even. There's conflict. When it comes down to it, we, we all have the potential to act like a Hatfield or a McCoy when we are wronged. 
And because of our propensity for conflict, Paul addresses that issue. It's the last one we're going to look at in Ephesians 4 in this whole topic that we've been talking about the last several weeks, how to walk in love. So with that, we're going to read one more time, beginning in verse 25. And I'd ask you to please stand. Verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4. We've read it so many times now that you probably have it memorized by now, right? Well, let's read what God has to say in our English translation. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, again, here we've been given the words by Paul, how to walk in love towards one another, how to treat a fellow brother and sister in Christ. And our focus this morning is going to be on verses 31 and 32, which deal with this whole subject of conflict, of conflict. Verse 31, this again follows Paul's normal uh, uh, pattern here in these verses. Verse 31, he gives a negative command. Verse 32, a positive command and the reason. So our outline this morning will simply be two points. Uh, The one is from verse 31, conflict occurrence. The second point will be conflict deterrence, verse 32. Paul says in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. These are all, what kind of terms? What are they all related to? Conflict, right? Fighting, hostility, anger towards one another. And before we, we break down each of these terms, talk about them a little bit, we need to remember something. Who is Paul writing to here? Believers. That's right. He calls them saints in the very beginning of his letter. Those who've been transformed by the blood of Christ. Those who were chosen from eternity past by God. And he saved them. Those that are going to experience forever and experience now eternal life. Christians. Paul wrote these words to believers. And this tells us that conflict can and does happen even within the body of Christ. The first term that Paul mentions here is bitterness. It was a word that used to refer to something sharp. It originally meant the, like the tip of an arrow. It came to also mean and describe the, the pungent smell or uh, maybe the reaction you have when you taste something that's bitter. It came to then refer to that feeling of anger or unforgiveness, that that distaste or bitterness that we feel internally when we've been wronged by somebody else. And bitterness is really, you know, it's that foolish notion that I can actually achieve some sort of justice by remaining angry at the other person. That I can exact some form of revenge or or punishment for something that that person has done to me. But in the end, bitterness only comes at great personal cost. You know, bitterness really is the poison that we drink hoping others will die. 
It's the, the hole that we dig to trap somebody else that we eventually fall into ourselves. Bitterness is like Haman's gallows that he built for Mordecai and ended up being hung upon them himself. You see, bitterness, it continues to dwell on the wrong. It continues to dwell and think about and meditate on the hurt that had been caused and the offense that had taken place. And, and bitterness won't let you feel better. The moment that you do and maybe you start getting over it, this bitterness creeps back in. It seeps in and attacks again. It, it tells you that you've been wrong. You've been mistreated. And that's not right. You don't deserve that. Bitterness thinks that, that peace and consolation will actually be achieved by mulling over that offense over and over again in your mind. Bitterness only feeds other sins, right? It doesn't accomplish peace and joy. It doesn't accomplish what you're hoping for, it's satisfaction. All it does is bring more trouble. In fact, Paul mentions two more sins in the next two things he talks about, wrath and anger. Now, both of these are, are synonyms for sinful anger. Wrath can carry the idea more of that, those out, that outburst of anger, of rage. The word for anger here more is the idea of that, that inner seething, that, that inner furnace generating heat. And both of these terms together just describe both the inner feeling, the outer expression of anger, sinful anger. For some, their anger is explosive, like a nuclear bomb. That not only destroys the person, but everyone around them. Or for others, our anger is that, like a nuclear reactor. That, that it's contained and seemingly controlled. But yet both forms of anger produce radioactive waste. And that waste can come in the form of what Paul talks about next when he says clamor. Clamor is this word that means to shout or, or to yell or to scream. Sometimes it can refer to a shout of joy or, or loud weeping. Here, obviously, it refers to verbal hostility that's carried out by yelling and, and screaming at someone else out of anger or bitterness or revenge. Another verbal expression of anger is this idea, that word that he uses is slander. It's kind of that more subtle verbal hostility where you would plant these kinds of words and thoughts with somebody else, talking about the person that you're angry with and, and trying to, intending to tear them down by your words, to make others feel bad or think bad of them, to bring harm and destruction to that other person by planting these seeds of doubt. Paul ends this list with the word malice. It's kind of a summary word. It's a general term for wickedness, evil, badness. Paul's describing all these things couched with this idea of a, a malice, a, a, an evil intent, an ill will, a determination to do that person harm. It's not a pretty picture. They describe that inner disposition and the outer expression of a malicious hostility. And Paul is telling Christians to stop doing that. He's telling believers to stop. And, and that's it. You know, this kind of stuff happens within the church. This kind of stuff exists within the bride of Christ. That should appall and, and disgust us, really. It's disgraceful. And yet we know it happens. Not just because Paul says it does, but by our own experience, right? We've experienced it here, even at Calvary. We're not immune to these kinds of sins, to, to the bitterness, to the vengeance, to wrath, anger, yelling, screaming, slander. There are husbands and wives who are bitter, 
angry and scream at one another. We have parents and children that are constantly arguing with each other. We have fellow believers, even here, who refuse to be around others in this body because of some wrong that's been committed and a bitterness a lack of forgiveness as a result of it. We have people here in other churches who've sued other believers or threatened to sue other believers, even though God's very clear on that in 1 Corinthians 6, not to do it. You know, I just, I just wish these things weren't so. Oh, how I wish and desire that no one could ever accuse anyone at Calvary of such behavior. That, that if any of these things were brought up and somebody, you know, oh, no, that person goes to Calvary, I, I know they don't have those kinds of attitudes and sins. Wouldn't that be amazing and wonderful? Don't you long for a church where these things would be far removed and put away from us? Amen. I do. And that's Paul's appeal here because really it sounds similar in English, but actually it's more of an appeal. This tone in this last statement in verses 31 and 32, he changes the verb tense in the command. He changes the voice of the command. First five or six verses, all the commands came in a, in a present imperative. And they were all in active or middle voice. But in this last command, put away, he changes the tense to an aorist tense and a passive voice. And I say all that because what it does is communicates on his part in earnestness. The idea is, oh, let, let these things just get out of here. Let us be rid of them. Let us blow them out of this church. Let us blow them out of the body of Christ. Oh, that we could be in a place where we would not have bitterness and anger and clamor and slander happening. It's, a, it's an appeal. There's, there's an urgency. It's a heartfelt tone on Paul's part. Let us be done with this. Let it be thrown out. It's like uh, Samwise Gamgee told Frodo what to do with the ring of power. Remember what he said? Let's be rid of this once and for all. Chuck it in to the volcano. Let's be done with it. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Let us be rid of these hateful attitudes once and for all. Let, let's throw them into the volcano and watch them melt away. For, for God's children should never be seen doing these things. We, we should never hold grudges, never have sinful anger or take revenge. We should never quarrel or fight especially with one another, right? should never happen. But why do we go there? Why would Paul have this instruction? What is it that causes us to be tempted and give in to the sins of bitterness and anger and, and vengeful wrath? What is it? What happens? Their response, right? A response to being wronged. Hey, that guy stole my pigs! Right? We might have another thing that we would assert. Maybe you don't raise pigs, but right. Hey, that guy did that to me and that was wrong. He shouldn't have done that. I'm going to pay him back. I've got news for you, friends. It's shocking, but true. You're going to be sinned against. By someone else here in this room. You will. Probably has happened. It's going to happen. You'll be wronged by another believer. You'll be offended by someone in your family. And at times that offense or that wrong could be a terrible sin, an unconscionable offense. But it's going to happen because if that person can sin against a holy God, they can sin against you. How will you respond to that? Right? You have a choice in that moment. Will you be bitter and loving, harsh, vengeful, angry or forgive? In fact, turn to Romans 12 
for a minute. Romans 12. This is such an important passage. Paul addresses this whole idea. When you have been wronged, when evil has been committed against you, how do you respond? And why should you respond that way? Romans 12. You know, our natural inclination when we've been wronged is, you know, eye for an eye, right? But look at what Paul says in Romans 12, starting in verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When you're sinned against, what does Paul say needs to happen? You pay them back? Do you return the favor? He says, no, don't do that. Don't take revenge. And that includes not harboring bitterness in your heart. For it is that bitterness that produces the desire to take revenge. Why do we withhold it? Why does Paul say don't pay it back? Why does Paul say don't take revenge? What does he say here? Vengeance is mine, God says. I'll repay. God says I will carry out justice. I will pour forth and do what is right. I will repay. I want you to think about that for a minute. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And you know what? God did repay. God did take vengeance for that wrong done to you. And do you know how he did that? He carried it out, yeah, on the back of his own son. He nailed him to a cross to appease his wrath against every sin. Every sin committed against you. Every sin that you have committed. And when that brother or sister has sinned against you, that sin does require payment. It does demand punishment. God would not be holy and just and righteous if he did not deal with sin, right? Because that sin that took place against you, it first happened against him. And Paul says here, leave room for the wrath of God. And when he says that, what he is meaning is that the full fury of God's anger against that person who sinned against you has been avenged. It's already been avenged. avenged on the back and the wrists and the heart, the ankles, the body of the very Son of God. So when you take revenge, and I want you to listen here right now. When you take revenge, do you know what you're saying to Jesus in that moment? This is what you're telling him. Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient to pay for that sin. You're telling him that his sacrifice on the cross, that God's wrath poured out upon the cross, that was inadequate for what that sin that that person committed against you. I mean, would would you tell that to Jesus' face? (laughs) Would you go up to him and say, you know, Jesus, all that you went through, all that you suffered is not enough. It's not enough to cover what that guy did to me. God's wrath wasn't appeased because I didn't get mine. That person sinned against me terribly. So Jesus, your blood is not precious enough. That's what you're saying when you have a vengeful heart. 
That's what you're saying when you carry out sinful anger in response to what another believer has done to you. Because Jesus already paid for their sin. God's wrath was already poured out on Christ. How dare we ever, ever say it's not enough. God's wrath has been satisfied. Brothers and sisters, lay down your arms. Just give up. Stop fighting. I mean, what, what are you really gaining by holding on? What are you really deriving from that? What benefit is it ultimately giving you by, by holding on to that bitterness? By thinking of ways to, to take revenge? How is that ultimately helping you? you really, you're only losing in that. And think about what you're losing. Probably your marriage, your health, your, your testimony, your joy, your walk with the Lord, your children. Let me give you, ask you a question. It's a novel concept. What would happen if you just forgave? What would you lose, really, if you did that? What is so bad about not getting payback? What is so awful about not getting the revenge you think you deserve? Leave it at the cross. Be free of those bonds. Bitterness is only bondage. Get rid of those things in your heart, the demands for blood that you have and the desire that you want for revenge. There's only pain and sorrow with it because it's like in any war or feud. In the end, nobody wins. But Tim, it's hard. It's so hard to let this go. I understand that. I know. I know what it's like to be bitter. I know what it's like to experience that. And I know there are some in this room that you've been sinned against far worse than I have, perhaps. So I'm not pretending to understand what it's like that some of the things maybe that you've gone through. And you struggle with resentment. Your, your stomach turns every time you think about that other person. Or maybe you wrestle with anger every time you see him or her. Do you want to stay there? Do you want to live the rest of your life that way? Do you want to be destroyed or be free? Do you want to have joy and contentment? Have a life that's free from that resentment and that hostility? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 32. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. You know what? Just in that verse... Those of you that have the chains of bitterness locked in your heart, I can hear the keys jingling. I can hear them. I can hear the jail cell of your heart being shaken and opened. If you would just pause and ponder these words. Don't be distracted by anything else right now. There's freedom here. There's freedom here. Brothers and sisters, the the answer to your hostility, your bitterness, your your struggle with anger against others when they've sinned against you or wronged you or maybe you think they've offended you, God's got the answer right here. Paul begins this verse with the conjunction but. It's not in some translations, but it is in the original Greek. I have to check it and see if Erasmus had it in his edition, but it's there. Paul's drawing a contrast here to be free from conflict We need to pursue kindness, tenderness, and grace. Paul says first to be kind. Now, I know I I don't need to 
give you a formal definition of that, do I? We all know what that is. Mark Twain said, Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can read. Right? It's, it's doing something nice for someone else, benevolent, loving, to do a, a good work on someone else's behalf. I remember, um, you guys been to Burbank Night Out? You know about that over on Magnolia? It's toward the end of November. It's kind of a, a Christmas uh, thing. There's music and a lot of the stores are open. They're giving out free things and stuff like that. It's a fun time. My, several years ago, my family was, was there. I think it may have been one of the first years we were here in Burbank. And we were with another family, and one of the stores was handing out balloons. So all little kids in our group got a balloon. Guess what? Yeah! Right? One of the little ones, three-year-old, lost their balloon. <laughs> hey, I still remember San Francisco Zoo when I was a little guy watching my balloon heading up into the sky. I still remember that. I felt terrible. Well, here, this little girl, distraught, you know, watching her, her prize floating up in the air. And another little girl, it's about three years old, um, she, without being asked, she went over to this, this other girl and she handed her her balloon. It was cute. It was sweet. And that, that's what kindness is. It's, it's sweet. It's doing something for someone else that's nice, that, that cares for them. And Paul says if, if you want to combat a bitter, angry, resentful heart, then you need to actively pursue being kind. You need to think of things that can show that kindness toward that other person. God does that. Our Heavenly Father is kind to those who don't deserve it. In fact, all of us here in this room do not deserve the kindness of God, and yet He has bestowed it and continues to. Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Or Ephesians 2. Four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And listen with verse seven, the reason so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. That is profound. God saved you so that he could be kind to you forever. <laughs> he forgave you through your repentance and faith given to him, given to you by him. He did that so that you could experience the kindness of God forever. <laughs> what a good God. God has been so kind to us. Anyone here deserve it? Nobody better raise your hand. None of us deserve it, right? And we know that. So why should we think that others deserve our kindness and they have to earn it? Or if they do something wrong against us, oh, I can withhold it now. You don't deserve my kindness. I mean, even God doesn't do that. God's kindness should move us to display kindness toward others. It should encourage and, and stir in us this desire to show it even in the midst of 
of being wronged. So instead of brooding over how that person sinned against you, come up with some ways that could show them actual kindness. And after that, Paul says, tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted with one another. That word originally referred to the physical, physically to the inward parts, your, your lungs, your kidneys, your, your bowels, your, your guts. Physically, physical reference to that because that later became this idea. This is where we feel emotion, right? The turning of your stomach or when you see someone in a pitiful plight and the thing that you feel for them, that compassion, that, that empathy, that desire to help. And Paul says we need to have that here. We need to have an empathy for them. One man said, empathy is your pain in my heart. John Piper put it this way. The idea behind tender-hearted is that our insides are easily touched. When your skin is tender, it doesn't take a very hard touch to make it feel pain. When your heart is tender, it is easily affected. It feels easily and quickly. But you see, a a bitter and, and vengeful heart prevents us from seeing the situation from the other person's point of view. Right? Bitter person says, hey, that jerk sinned against me, and I'm going to get mine. A, a resentful attitude never asked the question, I wonder why they did that. Why would they have done such a thing to sin against God and against me in that way? Resentful person never considers, hey, that, that poor soul needs to be restored to God and to me. To be tender-hearted means that rather than condemning them, you need to enter their world. And those of you with teenagers should know exactly what I'm talking about. If you do not have this attitude and try to enter their world, yeah, they've probably sinned against you. Been known to happen. But to parent them and shepherd them through that, if you just have a bitter and angry and vengeful heart, do you think that's going to produce in them a godly response? Do you think that's going to win them over to righteousness? (laughs) If so, you've got another thing coming. No, it's going to be kindness and tenderheartedness. You want compassion, right? (laughs) You want forgiveness, don't you? When you've blown it, you want mercy. I know you do. I'm just like you guys. We want to be shown grace. You know, if some child wandered onto the street, right? And you, you, you see them going out there and you yell out to them, hey, 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 don't do that. There's traffic here. You're going to get hurt. Stop. Stay, don't move any further. And the kid does it anyway. Wanders out in the street, ignores you or, you know, dis- disrespects you. They run out and play in the street and get hit by a car. They're there lying on the street, terribly injured. And are you going to say at that point, well, I warned the kid. He can just lie there for all I care at this point. That's a consequence for his stupidity. You're not going to do that. I know you. You'd be out there and you'd help the kid. Even though you warned him and he still chose to go out there. You would have a tender heart toward that. You would have empathy. And you need to remember, we are all just like that kid. We make sinful decisions. And do stupid things, sometimes against one another. And we need someone to show compassion and mercy. We don't hold it against a blind man that he can't see. We don't hold it against a lame man that he can't walk. We don't hold it against a deaf man that he can't hear. Don't hold it against a sinner when he sins. Show compassion. Jesus did it all the time, didn't he? Woman at the well. 
She was in sin. Sin against him. Sin against God. And he showed mercy. Gave her the gospel. The woman caught in adultery was brought to him. He showed mercy. We need to do the same. And I know for some here, that just seems too hard. (laughs) Too hard to do that. You may have been sinned against horribly and you, you just can't get past it. Showing kindness and compassion may be the furthest thing from your mind. And that's why Paul tells us in verse 32 how. That second half, verse 32, is so important where he says, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. See, this, this short phrase, this, this unlocks the whole thing. This is the key. This is what will provide freedom. The truths contained here give the means and the motivation to be free from the bondage of a bitter heart. Forgive here comes from the verb charizomai. I say that because it should sound a little familiar. There's another word that Paul's used over 15, about 15 times in Ephesians, the, the word charis. Remember what that one means? Grace. Grace. Now, charizomai can be translated forgiveness, but that's, that's rare. It's more often the idea of grace, gracing one another. That's what Paul is saying here, that we are to grace one another as God in Christ has also graced us. It's this idea, it's a general idea to be gracious, to, to show unmerited and undeserved favor towards somebody else. And when they've sinned against you, then they really don't deserve you to be kind, right? But God's saying, no, I show grace, you need to as well. I've shown you grace, you need to as well. And again, that, this is something all through the letter of the Ephesians, right? Something that Paul has talked about time and time again. He, he began the letter that way in chapter 1, verse 2, when he said, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. He told us of God's grace and salvation in one seven. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In two eight, you know this one, for by grace you have been saved, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Ephesians 4.7, by God's grace we have been given gifts to edify one another in the body of Christ. Ephesians 3.8, God showed his grace by bringing you the gospel. Paul said there, to me this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. God shows us his grace in Ephesians 2.10 by enabling us and helping us and giving us the good works that he wants us to do. God's grace is evident in sending his Holy Spirit to help us live for God, to help us know his word, understand it, and to live it out. Ephesians 2.7 already read this let me read it again paul saved us so that excuse me god saved us so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness so his grace is in your past his grace is in your present and his grace is in your future it's never going to stop god's grace has been dumped on us you can picture yourself standing behind a, a massive dump truck and it's just being poured Upon you. So when Paul says grace, that God has graced you in Ephesians 4.32, that's a loaded term. There's a lot behind that. It's an immense portion, an, an infinite portion of God's kindness, unmerited favor being bestowed upon you. And what we're seeing here is that you and I are to have a disposition of grace towards one another because that is God's disposition towards us. You're to be characterized 
by what God has shown you and continues to show you and will forever show you his amazing and wonderful grace. And notice Paul says here to be gracing each other. Important little phrase here. Because you see, I've kind of been focused on the fact that you need to show grace and forgive others. But you know what? At the same time, they're going to need to be showing it towards you. And there's a reason for that. You know why? Why do you need to be shown grace? Why do you need to be shown forgiveness? Come on. You're going to sin against them too. You know it. You will. I will. Right? This each other is very important to realize. This is a mutual deal going on here. It's not a one-way thing. It's not as if everyone around me is sinning against me and I've got to just try to keep showing mercy and grace. You need it too. You need your wife or your kids, someone else here in the body, to show you grace, each other. Paul said earlier in verse 31, we need to be kind to one another. Same idea. There's this mutual need for God's grace and compassion to be poured out through his people to one another because we all fail. We all fail. We need forgiveness, not just from God, but from each other. Don't think that that you're innocent here. You need to forgive. You also need to be forgiven. And yes, we are new creatures. And yes, we are growing in our maturity, hopefully, in the faith and becoming more like Christ. But yes, We also will struggle with sinning against one another. By God's grace, one day that will end. As the saying about the church is one foundation, right? In the end, her being pure and holy and perfect. But that hasn't happened yet here on this earth. God's moving that direction. But we're still sinning against one another. And at this point, some... Of you might be thinking, well, Tim, okay, I know that. I know I need to show grace. I know I need to forgive. This isn't something I've never heard of before. I know I'm supposed to forgive that person when they sinned against me. But I just can't seem to do it. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I just can't seem to stop thinking about what they did to me. How much they hurt me. That churning inside my stomach, inside my heart when I see them. Think about I just I can't get rid of it. And I know I'm supposed to forgive them. I, I know that, that they're, you know, they've sinned against me. And I know that I sin too. And, and, but it just it seems so much worse. Well, listen. Here's the key. This is the most important thing I'm going to say right now. And that is what Paul says in the last part of verse 32. Just as God in Christ has also graced you. Click. The lock fell off. That's it. That's it. That is the key. If you if you could just grasp that. Ken Sandy wrote a wonderful book called Peacemaker. If you haven't read it, I, it's the book to read in dealing with conflict and a biblical approach to how you do that. He said in that book, every time you encounter a conflict, you will inevitably show what you really think of God. He's right. That's what it comes down to. You only have the power to show grace, the ability to forgive if you have truly understood and experienced and grasped God's grace towards you. If you're struggling to forgive, if 
If that's something that you just you continue to be bitter against somebody else, that's something that you continue to struggle with, that you always seem to be angry at those around you and, and vengeful and, and, and wrathful against them, then you need to ask yourself whether or not you've truly experienced God's forgiveness yourself. That's a legitimate question. Because if, if you don't exhibit forgiveness, if you don't exhibit grace... Have you really grasped it yourself? If not, you don't understand God's forgiveness. You don't realize His power to enable you to forgive. God's glory isn't your priority. If that unforgiveness resides in your heart, then you need to, again, ask yourself if you've experienced God's. Jesus said in Matthew six fourteen, If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Mark eleven twenty five. he said, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Now what he's saying there isn't that if you want to be forgiven, then you need to forgive. He's not putting a condition on salvation. Right? We just, I just read from Ephesians 2, 8. You've been saved by grace, not by works. But what he's telling us here in these words is that Jesus has an expectation that if you have been forgiven, if you are saved, then you will forgive. Right? One who has been shown grace will extend grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in response to Paul's words in Ephesians 4.32. He said, The only people who will carry out this exhortation of the apostle are those who know that God has forgiven them. Nobody else. The vital question, therefore, is, do you know that your sins are forgiven? How can I know, says someone, that my sins are forgiven? I will give you a very good test. If you want to know whether your sins are forgiven or not, here is my test. Are you forgiving others? If you are, I don't hesitate to say that you're a Christian. But if bitterness is still rankling there, and if you are saying in spite of these glorious words, but after all, I did nothing and I don't deserve such treatment then you'd better go back and examine your foundations. I find it very difficult to see how such a person can be a Christian at all. Jones is always straight to the point. The power to forgive comes from having received God's forgiveness. If there's anything that describes a Christian, it is one who shows grace. And you know, it's interesting. Do you know how the, the, the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys ended? Do you know how Devil Ants, the patriarch of the Hatfield family, overcame his bitterness and his anger, his vengeful heart towards the McCoys? He experienced God's forgiveness. At the age of 72, he went forward at a revival meeting of all things. I guess Greg Lowry has been around for a long time. Some harvest crusade back in the Kentucky area. And he got saved, he got baptized. And for the last 10 years of his life was spent in peace. Amazing. And it turns out that others in the Hatfield family came to Christ as a result. That is the power of God's grace. To take the the most hostile feuding family in the history of our country and to bring peace. Because they've experienced the peace of God. That's what Ephesians 2.14 says. Jesus is our peace. Who made both groups. Who made all of us into one. 
new man so that we might experience peace. Let the blood of Christ wash away your sins and cleanse your bitter heart if you're caught in this. Now, I'm not saying that if you ever struggle with bitterness or eventual heart that, that you're not saved, right? Because Paul's writing this passage to believers. So again, he is saying that believers will struggle with these things. But if you are a believer and you are struggling with them, in that moment, you need to lay hold of these precious words. You need to remind yourself, just as God and Christ has also graced me. For you're not going to see victory over that bitterness. You're, you're not going to show grace to others. You're, you're not going to respond in kindness and compassion when you've been wronged if you don't understand and appreciate and meditate on God's grace for you. That's the key. Many don't reflect on God's grace for them, but they try to forgive in their own strength. They say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive, and as much as I don't want to, I will. And they'll think of something kind to do, you know, give them a piece of pie or something like that, and, you know, maybe with spit in it on the way, I don't know. Right? But we gut it out. Yeah, I'm supposed to forgive, so I just will, even though I still hate their guts in my heart. We do that. Because we don't embrace and understand God's kindness and forgiveness of us. He didn't spit in our pie. He gave it out of a kind and gracious and loving heart. And when you can grasp that and how God feels towards you and extending you forgiveness, that is what will empower you to do the same. And that's why Paul says, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So you are to forgive. And these words aren't, they're not meant to make you feel guilty. Oh, God forgave me, so I, I just better forgive them. We're not, we're not meant to be guilted into it, to be pressured into it. No, these words are here because Paul reminds you of God's grace in your life. So two things. One is you'll realize, wow, God's forgiven me. My debt's paid. My accounts are cleared. So I have the ability now to forgive you of your debts to me. Because all my debts are gone. So I can forgive you. I can afford it. And secondly, reflecting on God's grace in your life reminds you that, wow, God has been so good to me. Just out of gratitude and appreciation and affection for God, I want to extend the same. It moves your affections to be thankful. Again, the intent here is not to be driven by guilt, but by gratitude. Charles Spurgeon said, To be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it, but yet there is one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. As it is more blessed to give than to receive, so to forgive rises a stage higher in experience than to be forgiven. Knowing God's forgiveness is a wonderful, amazing blessing that brings joy and gratitude in my heart. But as Spurgeon is saying here, I can experience an even more intense joy when I can actually, in the same way, extend forgiveness to somebody else. You want real joy and freedom, brothers and sisters, forgive. And we've covered a lot of territory in these verses Verses 25 to 32 have given us a lot of instruction. As I said at the beginning, Paul's been getting into our kitchen a little bit here. 
been hitting us where it hurts. A few low blows here and there. Blows that we need. And I, I want us not to leave this section with the wrong mindset, though. I want our, us to remember, you know, because a lot of people approach this section of Scripture and many other passages, and they, they kind of see this thing as, okay, here's the do's, then here's the don'ts. Okay, this over here is sin. Bad, bad, don't do that. This over here is a good thing, so, okay, do that. So to, to flee the, the sinful things and pursue the righteous ones, to put on righteous behavior, put off sinful behavior. Now, that is... A true and biblical concept, but we have to remember one important thing. And Paul reminds us in almost every single of these instructions he gives us here, the means and the motive. You know, the Pharisees, pretty close to perfection in putting off sinful behavior and putting on godly behavior, right? But who was the group that Jesus was least pleased with? It's not a matter of just doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. We need that instruction and understanding, but we need to remember why. We need to remember why. Thomas Chalmers wrote a wonderful sermon about 200 years ago entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And then he talks about the fact, you know, we are creatures driven by affection. We do the things that we want to do. We don't do anything that we don't want to do. Even stuff that we don't like, like doing your chores or paying your taxes or obeying your parents or doing something that it may on the surface you don't want to do, but you do it because you don't want other things to happen, right? You follow the speed limit because you don't want to get a ticket. You do your chores because you don't want to get busted by your parents. Right? We're, we're motivated by, there's a, in the end, ultimately, something good for us, right? Our affection. We follow where our affection leads us. And Thomas Chalmers did a wonderful job of expressing the fact that, ultimately, it isn't just to say, this is a bad thing, so don't do it, and this is a good thing, so do that. What he says there is that we need to cultivate an affection that will overpower our desire to sin. 1 John 2.15 don't love the world or the things of the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father or love for the Father is not in you. Ultimately, if you want to see victory over sin, if you struggle with, with uh, telling lies and need to speak truth, if you struggle with your speech, if you struggle with bitterness or anger or conflict, if you struggle with stealing, if you struggle with any of these things, the ultimate path to freedom and to do what's right is that your affections be set on God. So in all these things, Paul continues to remind us of that. He says, flee falsehood and pursue truth because we're part of one body. He says, don't give in to sinful anger, but pursue righteous indignation so that Satan doesn't get a foothold in our community. He says that we need to not steal, but give so that others' needs are cared for. He talks about the fact that we are to flee destructive speech and pursue edifying speech so that the Holy Spirit is not grieved. And here we are to... Flee bitterness and pursue kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, because God has shown us grace. You see, the motive there is to cultivate affection for God. That, in the end, is what's going to move you to do what is right. There's a few things I did want to put in some practical considerations that um, I wanted you to consider in dealing with conflict. Go back to that for a second. One is, always check your own log, right? 
And I don't mean a written log. I mean the log sticking out of your eye. Right? Jesus said that. We first need to deal with our own sin. How have you sinned or tempted that other person to sin? What do you need to confess to God, to that other person? Secondly, actively pursue kindness, as we've talked about. Think of a thing specifically that would show them kindness. Not what you think is kind, but what you know would communicate kindness towards them. And thirdly, you need to also do what, what would be tender-hearted. Enter their world. Have compassion. If you continue to struggle, the conflict isn't resolved, bring someone else into the process. I don't mean by that go and talk to somebody else about what has happened against you, but say, hey, you know, I'm in this struggle, I'm in this conflict, I need your help. Paul did that in Philippians 4, right, where there were two godly women in a, in a struggle. He says there, I urge you, Yodia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who've shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So Paul there calls upon someone to, hey, there's these two godly women that they were part of the ministry and they've done so much for the Lord and they're having a fight right now. Can you go help them? So we need to do that. We need to do that. And most importantly, what's going to give you freedom? Again, brothers and sisters, is to dwell on God's grace. Dwell on Him. And that, as you truly understand and embrace it, will cultivate in you such an affection You need to focus on God's worthiness and His beauty. You you need to give careful meditation to His goodness and to His kindness and how He has shown you His love. You need to be reminded of the grace that you have been shown. And as you do that, it's kind of like digging for treasure. We went to um, the L.A. County Fair a week or two ago, and there's one exhibit there, you know, Pan for Gold. So you get a little bag and you, you have a little gold pan. And I remember my grandfather took me out when I was young. And he, he got gold fever one year. And he took me out into the backwoods of his farm. His, he had some property. And we spent two weeks panning for gold. We got about three flakes. Well, at the L.A. County Fair, you know, we're sitting there. And this, uh, you know, one of the kids is doing the panning thing. And everyone's kind of looking in. Just, you know, oh, I, I see one. There, hey, there's two there. You know, that girl found more gold in the ten minutes than my grandpa and I did in two weeks. But you know, as an excitement, as you're uncovering the rocks and they're getting swept away and you're seeing that little, little sparkly gold things, flakes in the bottom. That's how it is with the character of God. As you dig into his word and, and as these flakes and these nuggets start appearing and you're so excited. You can only, you can't help but not respond by extending grace and kindness toward others. Because that's what you are moved by in seeing that in your heavenly father. And so again, I would encourage you not to let anything take away from helping you to see God because that's what will stir your soul. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When you realize the precious treasure that the Lord Jesus Christ is, you will give up everything you have, including your bitterness, your anger, and your revenge to have Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, <laughs> we thank You for coming to this earth and showing on day-to-day 
what it means to forgive, what it means to show grace. Lord, thank you for showing us that grace. Thank you for extending your mercy toward us, for forgiving us our sins, for continuing to to bestow on us riches and gifts and kindness. And you'll do that forever. Lord, move in us, stir in us to be a holy people that gives you honor and pleases you and how we treat one another. That we would be truthful to one another. That we would not uh, hold bitterness or conflict with one another. That we would not take but give. That our speech would be edifying and encouraging and building up. Lord, move in us. Pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant Paul. For so many others who have dedicated their lives so that we might know you and know your truth. Since Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.